0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Man from the Atom, uh, by G. Peyton Wurtenbaker. A story first published in... 1923 in an issue of science invention science and invention august 1923 that was uh one of hugo gernsback's magazines prior to amazing stories it was also was it the first issue of amazing stories it was published in
1: it was not only the first issue of amazing stories since amazing stories was the first science fiction magazine it's the first issue of any science fiction magazine
0: I I guess that's true yeah um, it, it, of course they didn't call it science fiction at the time they were still calling it scientific fiction which actually there was no they you know. Jesse, that's a him a, a, he <laughs> a, a back made up yeah well I'm, I'm, I'm thinking they as in the, the readers of the magazine eventually would be calling it that too I noticed I noted that up to the 1950s um, at least at least the 40s people were still using the abbreviation STF because for a long time I was like what what is this they're talking about and then I realized it was scientific fiction
1: right. Although it is also true that if you look through the letters to the editors of Amazing Stories, within three or four months, the the fans writing it are using the phrase science fiction. Right. And they're using it more frequently. And so those people who wrote STF were just paying homage to uh, to Gernsback. Gernsback loved to be cute. and
0: Yeah, it is a very cutesy phrase, scientific fiction. Yeah, yeah getting the thick
1: of scientific and the thick of fiction to overlap. Um,
0: Cute. It's it's like speeding into the future, that word, right? (laughs) (laughs) The words are blurring together. Um, You know, uh,
1: this story that we're talking about today, the man from the atom, um, as you say, originally was published by, by Gernsback um, in another magazine of his um, called uh, science and invention. So there's this idea that, that science is so crucial. Um, and in fact, the first issue of Amazing Stories, when he invents scientific fiction, our first crystallizes the idea and points to it in uh, the editorial to that magazine, uh, that very first editorial, a new sort of magazine is the, the name of that editorial. A lot is made of the importance of science and of how science works in fiction. So, this portmanteau of scientific fiction, you know, the fic involved, the, the making um, from the Latin, the making um, is the crucial thing, at least for Gernsback in an explicit way. That's what's crucial. Will this stuff be real? Will it be right? And um, for those who haven't looked at the old issues of Amazing Stories... Uh, I would point out that it had a tagline um, on the under the ma- on the masthead. It said, "Every month, extravagant fiction today, cold fact tomorrow." <laughs> right. So, uh, and in fact, just a few months later, this was April 1926. In July 1926, the editorial that Gernsback writes. Asserts that he is going to be assembling, that he has in fact assembled a marvelous scientific review board to make sure that the science underlying all of these stories, the extravagant fiction today, could really become cold fact tomorrow. So the frame within which Gernsback is presenting the man from the atom is one that asks a very special kind of suspension of disbelief, not a suspension of disbelief because you you want to believe, not a suspension of disbelief because it, it somehow satisfies your own inner, inner psychological urges, or fills a hole in your your emotional life, or gives you a pleasure to which you would like to return. But rather, you suspend disbelief because you acknowledge that science is going to change things and good knowledge of science now will be able to tell us what the world is like then. There's a strong claim in extravagant fiction today, cold fact tomorrow, which is why I think if you've got that in the back of your mind, as Grinchback clearly does, you publish this obvious fiction in a magazine called Science and Invention except here Wharton Baker's invention is as I say an obvious fiction
0: it's, uh, I was wondering if this has the very first uh, space suit I have a feeling it's not I, I know that Wells has uh, some space travel I'm not sure that anybody uses one in the, in the novel where they go to the moon what's that one called? Uh, the one with where Kavor goes to the moon. Yeah, um, Doctor Caver and his buddy go to the moon. It, it, I mean, it, this feels like that, but um, I think they they walk around on the surface of the moon. There's talk of vacuums and such, but I don't think they have spacesuits there. Um, I haven't read the Vern where they take a rocket to the moon or a, a gunshot to the moon. Right. Do they have spacesuits there? <laughs> I don't recall that. No. Yeah, so
1: I think they just get off and prance and frolic. Well, they don't frolic exactly. They prance about this. I'd never thought of that, Jesse. This may be the first uh, fictional spacesuit, and we should remember it was first published in 23,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not in 26. Huh? It's interesting Besides because it, it spends a lot of
0: time there. explaining how mm-hmm. this how the spacesuit would work, and um, obviously there are issues with it. Um, uh, There are many issues with the science in here, but but it makes valiant efforts, right, which I think is pretty terrific,
1: especially when you realize that the guy who's writing this, who's attempting to uh, to speak as a man who has gone through literally eons is actually a story written by a 15 year old. Wow.
0: What a 15-year-old, wow.
1: I guess. Went on, as I'm sure you know, to a a long career, basically, uh, in science writing rather than science fiction writing, including uh, writing science reports for, uh, was it NASA? I mean, ends his career working for the government. Wow. The US government doing scientific, non-fiction science writing.
0: He doesn't have a huge uh, fictional biography. No, he doesn't just there's uh, basically this a sequel and uh a story called the coming of the ice which i think is in an, another issue of maybe in the next issue of amazing stories uh the chamber of life 1929 the ship that turned aside 1930 and elaine's tomb 1931 that and that's it so
1: maybe he outgrew science by the time he actually became a man there is yeah. there, there are only two characters in this story uh in fact, a boy and a man. And yeah. the view the viewpoint character is is the adolescent boy. Um
0: oh, why why do you say he's a boy? He's obviously he feels like a young man. Does he does it say he's a what his age is? Well
1: the the narrator refers to um the man as my friend Professor Martin. Mm-hmm. And they are T-Y-N, so I'm assuming that Martin is a surname rather than a given name, Mm -hmm. Um, and when he comes in to first meets him, um, that is in the story when he first gets to his house, he walks in and he says, I found Professor Martin in his laboratory, bending with the eyes of a miser counting his gold over a tiny machine that might easily have fitted in my pocket, He did not see me for a moment, but when he finally looked up with a sigh of regret that he must tear his eyes away from his new and wonderful brainchild, whatever it might be. He waved me a little unsteadily into a chair, sank down in one himself with a machine in his lap. I waited, placing myself in what I considered a receptive mood. Kirby, he began abruptly at last. Have you ever read your Alice in Wonderland? I gasped, perhaps in my surprise. Alice. are you joking, professor? Certainly not, he assured me. I speak in all seriousness. Well, yes, I have read it many times. And then he says that he thinks it's perhaps more for adults than for children. So this this encounter where the, the narrator is respectful of the silence of the older man the older man would rather attend to his brainchild than mm-hmm. to a real child. The older man refers to the younger male by his given name, yeah. Kirby. Yeah. You know? And he thinks of it as your Alice in Wonderland, but then the narrator sort of defends himself by saying, well, I thought it was really more for adults. Um, it seems to me that there are two significant asymmetries here. One, that the professor is not only in age, but socially and intellectually, uh, presumed by both characters to be in a superior position.
0: You know, now that you mention it, this is this exact same relationship as Marty McFly has with uh, Professor Brown, Doc Brown.
1: Right. right. And he is a
0: teenager in that, and they have the exact kind of sort of zany uh science-based adventure where the mom probably wouldn't approve yep right and uh, there is a line in here that's pretty funny it says do you need any time to put your affairs in order <laughs> right <laughs> and he says well not not any that you know i i can't deal with later so no i'm ready to go right um yeah, exactly. And he also tells us. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jesse. No, I'm just. Uh, I I I got the sense that he was young, but I didn't get the sense that you know he was a child per se. I, I would say more, he's on the cusp of being uh, 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 an adult, and yet I didn't get the sense that he was like a student of the professors either.
1: No, I think but he's a teenager in town. I, yeah. I think the Marty McFly uh, parallel is excellent. Uh, there is a point at which. Uh, he says that is uh, Kirby says that uh, he's going to go on this uh, adventure because um, he um, he his life is not as significant. Mm. Right. That is uh, I'm trying to find it where um, we know that that the professor is a genius, um, but. But Kirby um, has is romantic,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. is romantic. And so we make a a perfect pair. Oh, yes. It's actually on the first page Um, where he plainly saw pictures of worlds and universes. They vainly groped among pictures of his words. They that is the lesser minds, Um, not geniuses. And that's the word used. Uh, they vainly groped among pictures of his words on printed pages, mm. as looking at his words.
0: I highlighted that as well. It's 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 pretty interesting way of of describing understanding, right?
1: It's it yes, in fact, but that's a, that's a way of understanding that's buried. I shouldn't say buried. That is in our language.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What what we get here is that he plainly saw, okay, pictures of worlds and universes. So what he has, that is the professor, is imagination. Mm -hmm. He can make images in his own mind. They have imagination. These lesser men see groups of letters, and they don't even get the impression of a word. The word intelligence Mm. comes from the Latin interlegere, meaning to read between the lines. Mm. So there's a fundamental connection between imagination and intelligence. And what this passage is telling us is that the genius who has great imagination, he's the intelligent one. The lesser people do not. They don't get the picture. They don't get the words, much less reading between their lines and neither does Kirby. But he says, I, however, though I had not the slightest claim to scientific knowledge was romantic to a high degree and always willing to carry out his strange experiments for the sake of the adventure and the strangeness of it all. So, which is of course, just like the teenage readers of this magazine.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Right. And so the advantages were equal this is marvelous writing, I think. Mm-hmm. The advantages were equal. So Kirby, the teenager who understands none of this stuff, right, can place his faith in Dr. Martin, Professor Martin, and he is the necessary complement of Professor Martin's ideas becoming real, becoming cold fact tomorrow. And so the advantages were equal. I had a mysterious personage ready to furnish me with the unusual. He had a willing subject to try out his inventions for he reasoned quite naturally that should he himself perform the experiments, the world would be in danger of losing a mentality it might eventually have need of. So this guy is submerging himself, right? But not, not really, because he believes that he is reflected in the, the glory of this, this genius. And he only he Kirby, can be the one to actually have the adventure that this genius makes possible in terms of the early critique of science fiction being adolescent, uh, power fantasies. <laughs> this book, this magazine story is superb. It is an absolute exemplar. And you can see why he needs it because he does not have a father figure. Professor Martin turns with regret, away from his own brainchild to this mere other child admittedly a teenager mm-hmm. i i
0: i want to go back to the spacesuit because i i um i was struck by the technology and if this is the i'm not 100 sure that it is uh, i <laughs> i have a niggling feeling that it isn't the first spacesuit described or anything but it's certainly a very good one description that is so I've got, I've got some quotes here. <clears throat> Walking to a cabinet in the rear of the room, he opened it and withdrew from it some strange-looking paraphernalia. This, he said, holding up a queer-looking suit, is made of a great quality, uh, sorry, quantity of interlocking metal cells, hermetically sealed, from which the air has been completely exhausted, so as to give the cells a high vacuum. These separate cells are then woven in, into the fabric. When you wear this suit, you will, in fact, be enclosed in a sort of thermos bottle. No heat can leave the suit, and the most intense cold cannot penetrate through it. So, that's a pretty good description of what a spacesuit is supposed to do. Um, however, um, that's also not all you need for a spacesuit. So, he continues, I quickly got into the suit, which was not as heavy as one might imagine, given that it's... It's got hollows uh, that are, you know, vacuum. (laughs) That makes sense. It covered not only the entire body, but the feet and hands as well. The hand part being a sort of mitten. After I'd gotten into the suit, the professor placed over my head a sort of transparent dome, which he explained was made of strong, unbreakable bakelite. Um, And they did have transparent bakelite at the time. (laughs) It makes sense, right? The, I think it's Brunswick by the Beagle-like, way okay yeah the the globe itself really was made of several globes one within the other the globes only touched at the lower rim their interstices in, interstices, interstices where the glo- yeah. inst- there's a say it again interstices interstices like that word where the globes did not touch formed a vacuum the air having been drawn from the spaces. Consequently, heat could not escape from the transparent headpiece, nor the cold come in. So well, what's outlined in this is awesome. Um, it Heat can't get in, and cold, uh, cold can't get in, and heat can't get out. He's going to cook. <laughs> That's never mentioned in the rest of the story. Um, and this is, of course, because it's such an early spacesuit, and maybe they hadn't thought the science through quite well enough. But at least it's got a little bit more. Here, here's the last part of the spacesuit that we need. From the back of this headgear, a flexible tube led into the interior. This tube being connected to a small compressed oxygen tank, which the professor strapped to my back. Um, so he needs this because he's gonna, ex- he's gonna go into space, and space has no um, air, and so he would die. And space is cold, we're told. <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, is kind of correct and kind of completely wrong, right? Um, so if, if you're talking about the spacesuits they used on the moon, right, they, they have to protect both against the light of the sun, which can generate massive amounts of heat, and against the cold of the surface of the planet or the surface of the moon. Um, and they also have to regulate the temperature of the suit, inside because humans generate their own heat um so what's so cool is that this is pretty much a a pretty good description of a spacesuit and how it would work i think the compact oxygen tank is not going to be big enough for the length of his journey (laughs) but other uh and and you know the fact that uh, sort of the machine doesn't describe things that i i don't i don't know how they could scientifically happen but other than that, this is a pretty hard science fiction story, if you know what I mean. I do. Um, I think that
1: that you're right. I think it's important to notice that, as with most hard science fiction stories, some of the science is wrong. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: that is, for example, um, anyone who studied physics knows that the sentence that you read heat could not escape from the transparent headpiece, nor could the cold come in, is wrong.
0: Yeah, it's not strictly speaking true. There is no such
1: thing as cold. Right. Right? There's only absence of heat. So when it says heat could not escape, um, what that means is that, you know, not only couldn't heat escape, but heat couldn't escape. Because that's, that's what it means to say the cold can't get in. And that's why you're absolutely correct in saying that if he can't escape, the guy's going to cook. Yeah. Um, right. There is no cold. Similarly, uh, while I could still see the professor, I could hear him talk no longer as sounds cannot pierce a vacuum. Right. Well, sounds do not get transmitted through a vacuum. That's true. But radio waves do. So you could Easily um, arrange to talk to somebody outside a spacesuit. We do that. But what's more to the point is this: if you got a thermos bottle, which is what's being described here, mm-hmm. you got a thermos bottle, um, and you put a say a little microphone inside it, and close the cap, and tap the outside of the, micro- of the thermos bottle, you'll pick up a sound on the inside. Sure. And, and the reason is that. What you don't have in a thermos bottle is one sphere suspended inside another sphere with the air in between evacuated. And the reason you don't do that is that there's no way to keep the inner sphere suspended. It's going to have to touch somewhere, even if it's just a few prongs holding it in position, which is the case with thermos bottles. You've got little rubber spacers. Between the inner and outer glass walls, the reason they're rubber is because rubber is has a very low dielectric uh, constant. It's it's it doesn't transmit heat very well. So hence, it takes a long, long time for the heat to escape or but he doesn't get that. But in fact, his description, you could just you could just put a you could hold a glass, put the bottom of a glass on the guy's helmet. And talk into the glass, and he'd hear it.
0: Uh, there's a, so, yeah. the science is not really thought through.
1: But you know what? He's 15 years old.
0: <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, good. I want to read yeah. this because it's so it's it's. I don't know if it's funny on purpose, or funny accidentally, but it's funny no matter what. And it's also it's kind of pretty in a certain sense. Like it's it's epic pretty in a certain sense. Listen to this. The professor next placed the transparent he- headgear over my head and secured it with attachments to my vacuum suit a strange feeling of quietness and solitude came over me while i could still see the professor i could i couldn't hear him talk no longer as sounds cannot pierce the vacuum that's the quote you said but then the next line is is just awesome and hilarious once more the professor shook my hand warmly <laughs> so uh, it can only be one way if it's if it's a perfect uh, you know good insulator uh, with affection, right? As opposed right. to with heat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'm not sure a 15 year old would uh, would make that pun. But it, it feels like it's it 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 deserves some attention.
1: It, it certainly it certainly st- stood out to me as well. <laughs> I, I think we ought to we ought to look at the end because the the the, the trip the the story. Is mostly an effort to deal with the kinds of things you and I've been discussing. What happens if we let science become extravagant? So our fellow his the brainchild is something that will allow the fellow to grow. Mm-hmm. And in this spacesuit, he's got this brainchild, you know, his brainchild, in fact, takes over his real child, because on his chest, that is to say, over his heart, um, he affixes this machine with three buttons, the upper one makes you get bigger, the middle one makes you stop and this bottom one makes you get smaller and the bulk of the story as you know is hitting the upper button and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and we get uh, interesting descriptions of him first getting so big that the professor has to go away and then he gets so big that he's beyond the atmosphere of the earth and he gets bigger than stars i mean just and it's it's really quite extraordinary Mm -hmm. um especially given 1923 it's it's not as beautifully written are as philosophically potent as olaf stapleton who no, uses this kind of thing that, all the time
0: it's but not it's, bad no it's not bad, it's not bad.
1: No. no it's not bad and then he gets scared because he's so big i mean he's bigger than, than a galaxy he's so scared he wants to go back and so he presses the bottom button uh,
0: and- uh, he presses this- Stop button.
1: Well, first he stops the stop one, right? And then he thinks about things. Um, and But eventually, he's, it's the smaller button. And he, he thinks, okay, so he's going back and back and back. And he realizes when he gets back, I mean, as you remember, there are all these things about swimming in this sea and that sea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it turns out that the reverse gets him down to the size of being on an Earth-sized planet. But it hasn't brought him back to Earth. It's brought him to a place where people understand him telepathically but he is like a savage among them I find myself a savage a creature to be treated with pity and contempt in a world too advanced even for his comprehension nothing here means anything to me I live on sufferance as an ignorant African might have lived in an incomprehensible to him London Uh, a little gratuitous racism there A strange creature to play with and to be played with by children, a clown, a savage, and yearn as I will for my earth. I know I may never know it again, for it has it was gone, forgotten, non-existent a trillion centuries ago. And I can't help but but realize when the Kirby is speaking here. What he's he's saying is. It's back to that hurt of being the the second-rate child compared to the brainchild, that the, the man that he wants to go back and see is gone forever. The whole earth that might have been a place he could have grown up to take his own place in is gone forever because he tried to use the genius. He tried to enact, have the adventure of the father figure. And what he finds is that Um, In a world full of those who are more advanced than he is, he's a savage and he lives only by their sufferance. I can't help but wonder what it feels like as a 15-year-old to write a story like that where the adventure of science gets you to risk your life knowingly. And instead of your life being snuffed out in your story, everyone else's is. There's a kind of tragic anger i think behind this high adventure it's a masquerade this kid and i mean Baker, the author he wants his world and he's trying to get it in fiction
0: you know there's a, a possibility that there's something worse than just the he's lost his world um The way the machine works, increasing and decreasing in size, is uh, sort of a hand-waved explaining that it takes in uh, elements in the atmosphere and adds them to your own. And then when you're decreasing, it does the opposite. Um, There's a line on the last page, uh, three or four paragraphs from the bottom, and it goes like this. Men had come and died. Races had flourished and fallen. Perhaps all mankind had died away from a world stripped of air and water in ten minutes of my life. Um, uh, did he kill his own planet in the blowing up of his own body? And then when he's in outer space, we we were told he he pushes... He, he sort of moves around a little bit, swims a little bit in space by pushing against what little ethereal gases are there, right?
1: Yeah. Did he destroy a- the a- Earth
0: in this in this great blowing up? It, it, it feels like um, the first, and it says at the end of this, the end of part one, um, it feels like it's the first of a series of sort of tragic Gulliver's travel stories to me. Yeah, it's
1: also like Alice Mm -hmm. at the end of Alice in Wonderland when she is being tried and is being found guilty. Mm -hmm. She gets bigger and bigger and bigger and says, well, you're nothing but a pack of cards and flings them away and Mm -hmm. destroys their world. In fact, the, the reference to Alice, which we're told is really for adults, um. Uh, the professor reminds him about the cheese. You eat from one side of it, you get bigger. You eat from the other side of it, you get smaller. Assuming cheese is yellowish, then it sort of is mimicked by the golden machine on the professor's lap, which becomes affixed to Kirby's chest. But in fact, in Alice, there is no cheese. In Alice, it the is
0: mushroom?
1: A mushroom. Yeah. That's right. And the mushroom is obviously hallucinogenic. <laughs> um, but here we have something else. Uh, I I don't know. Maybe Wharton Baker just made a mistake, but it seems unlikely because he has Kirby say, I've read the book many times. Mm. And I think what he's giving us here is, no, this isn't just my hallucination. And uh, you may well be right, Jesse, that what he's not willing to admit to himself is that he is he is fantasizing not just the world being unreachable to him but he wants to be able to make a fiction where he destroys it
0: and that opening line i am a lost soul and i am homesick yes homesick yet how vain is homesickness when one is without a home it's a pretty uh it's a pretty this is like a very downer of a story for such a so buoyant and enthusiastic character right he is very much the marty mcfly excited and interested and everything's you know even the professor in in the illustration i've got from amazing he he almost seems happy as he drives away from the the feet of this giant that's you know feeling first, the pine needles of the of the of the mountains and the trees underneath his feet
1: you make me rethink that that the end of that first paragraph i I did understand what you're pointing to about the homesickness. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But in the light of our discussion, when when Kirby finishes that paragraph, he says. But I must tell the tale, though there is no man left to understand it.
0: Mm.
1: And I had thought on previous readings that by man, he meant human being. Mm. But in fact. He may simply mean a man. Mm. and he is now without role model without sucker without helper with nothing he's indulged and destroyed so he's alone but there's always more to say
0: and remember You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.